So, last week we talked about what enlightenment is, what is, what it means for somebody to be awakened or enlightened, liberated, so forth. And uh, we sort of ended with a little question and answer session where uh, somebody suggested that the first stage of enlightenment was like this wall you had to get over and you had to pile up enough sand to get over that wall. And once you did, you wouldn't slide back. And that's a, that was a very good description of it. Uh, light and, uh, awakening, I prefer the term awakening to enlightenment for a few reasons that aren't probably terribly important. But it is... It's not an all-or-none thing, but but you just, once you're enlightened, that's it. It's all over with, nothing left to do. It's a a process that continues on. That first event, though, is very important because it marks a point from which you you won't slide back in certain ways. And that's what makes it very, very special. And... The Buddha described four different stages or levels or degrees of enlightenment. And that first one is called stream entry. Uh, you could think of it as once you enter the stream, then the stream carries you. Uh, but it's a point from which you won't slide back. But until you've made that transition, uh, you can certainly very easily lose that. Well, maybe you shouldn't say very easily, but it's quite possible that you can lose that. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to start out talking about tonight is the stages in enlightenment. Uh, and we'll begin with that first one. Um, most of you, if you have read or thought about it at all, have probably gained a strong impression that when this happens, it's this sudden special thing that happens, like a thunderbolt from the sky or something like that. Sounds rather magical. Um, There is a term for that moment in Pali, it's called Maga Pala. These are two words joined together. Maga means path, and Pala means fruition. They speak, in, in the Theravadan tradition, they speak of these stages of enlightenment as being different paths. So you, you attain to the first path, uh, and that you have a path moment. And then having achieved that first path, having become a stream enterer, then there is a fruition that's associated with that. And part of your practice from that point is to repeat that fruition uh, experience. Uh, Pala is a word that means fruition, and Pala Samapati means basically to immerse yourself in that fruition. In, uh, 
in Sanskrit, which Mahayana Buddhists use, the language they use, it's called Darsana Marga. It's called the path of seeing because it's uh, the same thing. They, they refer to these as being different paths, although they've added a few paths before that, that of uh, things that a person does before they reach the first stage of enlightenment. And uh, then actually they've broken it down into uh, 10 levels or boomies that come after. But in both, it sounds... It it, 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 it it comes across in a way that really enforces, reinforces this idea of this wowie-zowie moment. You know, one moment I'm not enlightened, the next moment I am. Where that comes from is uh, some, some Buddhist philosophical thinking, which it's quite accurate to say, say that there is an instant where you make the transition. This is... This is a point from which you don't slide back. So logically, there must be one particular point in time, one moment in time when you make that transition. But it's also interesting that the Buddha himself never referred to it in terms of there being this sudden moment like that. As a matter of fact, if you look at the descriptions, and the sutras, some of them sound like they could be a sudden moment like that. And others of them uh, don't. And they, as a matter of fact, they seem to happen more gradually while somebody's in doing all kinds of other things. I found this very interesting because I started to meet people who, in terms of the definitions of what it means to be awakened, to be a stream enterer, uh, seem to fully meet that description without question, but they swore they had never had that kind of experience. Interesting idea. <laughs> or others who had had something like that, but it didn't happen in, in the way that it's commonly pictured. One woman described that she woke up one morning and things were different. And as the hours went by throughout the day, they just got more and more different. So it stretched out over the whole period of the day. <laughs> and also, the interesting thing is that the way she described it, something had happened while she was asleep to set this in motion. She wasn't sitting in meditation and all of a sudden this realization came to her. It actually happened when she was asleep. All of this makes perfect sense to me. Now, I think that the meditation practices that we do in certain ways are they're conducive to having a special experience in meditation that wakes you up. And when it happens in meditation... Um, you're very aware of it when it happens, even if it doesn't last very long. You're, you're definitely aware that something happened. And so all of this sort of goes together with the common image that this is a sudden event. But when, we, when you reflect on it, it's 
it's an ongoing process of change that has reached a crucial point. And as a matter of fact, most of the important stuff happened before that moment in time. You know, it's like the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, that straw, nothing special about it. It's all the other straw that was there before, right? And that's really more what it is. Uh, It's all of the work a person does before that that makes this difference. Let me tell you what it means to be a stream enterer. To be a stream enterer is to realize to the depths of your being that you are not your ego self. You are not this idea that you carried around for so long of who you are. As a matter of fact, when you look closely at it, there's not even an idea of who you are. There's a whole bunch of different ideas of who you are that are kind of mixed up with each other and give and take different times, different situations. It's constantly changing. But I'm sure all of you have this feeling of, I I am this person with these attributes. I don't like these things and don't like these things. And I feel this way about them things and different way about other things. And I have these thoughts and ideals and wishes and hopes and these things that I fear and everything else. And you identify with that. have all these characteristics. You know, uh, you, you might dwell on the positive ones or the negative ones, but it's still, a, it's a bag of transient attributes that you tend to identify with. One of the things that makes somebody a stream entrant is that in the depths of their being, they have realized that whatever I am, it is not that. The second thing is that up to that point, they might have believed in rules and rites and rituals and and the powers of things like that. Um, Most people have a whole lot of little superstitions they carry around. How many of you have little superstitions? It's pretty common. Almost everyone does. We've got little superstitions. And we've got bigger superstitions, and we create new superstitions. If you decide to practice the Dharma, somebody tells you about uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood, you'll create a superstition about that, that somehow there's some magical properties associated with you doing or not doing those things. Well, as a matter of fact, absolutely everything you do, even everything you think, has consequences, and its biggest consequences are on you. But there's absolutely nothing magical about it. And so one of the realizations that a person has when they become a stream enterer, it's the same way. It's like all these different superstitious attitudes that we've carried around, you know, about some power outside of us, or powers, or some powers that rituals hold, and things like that. All of that dissolves in in a much clearer understanding that 
everything is causally connected and that there's nothing that stands outside of that causal matrix that is magic. There's, you know, there are, there's incredible power in the universe and in everything, but it, it's not some kind of other power. It's, it's actually an own power. And then the third characteristic of a person who's achieved stream entry is that up until that point, from time to time, they might have found themselves doubting, you know, is this really possible? Is this, you know, is this true? Uh, does it happen this way? Is what I'm doing, you know, can this ever lead to it? It's very natural to have those doubts. It's programmed into us to doubt anything that doesn't give us pretty much, you know, right away satisfaction. And it's, it's a good and natural thing that we have that because otherwise we waste a lot of our times and anybody that comes along could exploit us with whatever nonsense they wanted to lay on us. But we're born doubters, which helps to keep us on track and not waste our times and be exploited quite so much. But of course, there are certain things that once we experience them, there's no doubt anymore. You know, there was a time when you were a child where your mother might have told you over and over again, don't touch the stove, it's hot. And the doubting part of you didn't believe it, but then there was a day you touched it, and after that, from then on, there was no doubt. <laughs> and that's the other thing about stream entry, is that what, you, what you've experienced, what you've understood, uh, has confirmed for you that well, yeah, there is something to this after all. And of course, it's very highly uh, motivating. It's part of the reason that you can't ever fall, fall back is that you now have that conviction. Um, so that's what it means to be a stream enterer. You have overcome the three fetters of uh, attachment to personality view, uh, the belief in the power and efficacy of rights, rules, and rituals, and uh, doubt about uh, the validity of this path. So that's, that is the first stage of enlightenment. First stage of awakening. And we talked about a little bit last time about what that's like. Because you know you are not your ego, it spares you a lot. Think of how much of your suffering just... Obviously, in a quick reflection, how much of your suffering in life is due to your attachment to your view of yourself as your ego, right? And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that up here intellectually, we can realize it isn't true, but in our heart, we believe it is true, and that's why when something happens, it hurts. It's like a dagger through the heart. And you can't change that by thinking about it. Once you have, once you've broken this attachment, in other words, once a, you were talking about deep levels, that once, once those very, very deep levels of your mind have gotten enough information that, they, that they've been able 
to see clearly that it just isn't so, then those deep levels of your mind stop making you see it that way all the time. And that removes an enormous amount of your suffering. <clears throat> not all of it, and not completely. You have a lot of habitual ways of thinking, and you'll slip into those habitual ways of thinking, and you'll start to hurt. Something will happen, and out of habit, you'll react emotionally, and it won't be very pleasant. But the difference now is that at some point, might be two seconds, might be ten minutes, might be a week, but at some point, you're going to suddenly wake up all over again, just like you did before, that, wait a minute, this is nonsense. Why am I feeling like this when, you know, it has no basis? And all of that goes away. The same thing is true. It's because of your belief in and attachment to your ego self that you behave in a lot of nasty ways that cause problems for other people. And this is another thing that changes with somebody who has become a stream natural. Because the driving force behind that is this deep down conviction that I am who I think I am. And when you're no longer so attached to that, then the behaviors don't flow out of that the way they once did. On the other hand, you still do have all the habits. And you may find yourself doing and saying exactly the kind of things you did before. But that's the difference. You find yourself and you say in the same way that, whoa, why am I doing this? And you immediately set about trying to fix it and make it right because that's the only thing that makes sense to you to do. Yes? Um, so, if you come to the knowingness that you're not who you thought you were, and, and you, you, know, you have an ego detachment there, then, then you're in limbo land. Unless what accompanies that, it would seem, is that you, you, you're, you're identifying more with that taproot we were talking about, that deeper thing. So then that leads you then into the next stage. I mean, it seems to be, you can't be in limbo land. You have to be somewhere. No, you people, it, it's true. It, it leaves you in a limbo land. And so people that are the, you know, who have awoken to the fact that they're not who they thought they were, generally try to make sense of this and they try to figure out who they really are. <coughs> because in this first stage, they've just, they've just learned they're not, they're not who they always thought they were. It's actually not until the fourth stage, the fourth path, what's called becoming an arhat, that you lose this sense of being a separate self. And so here you are, you, you know you're not who you thought you were, but you still feel like you're a separate self. So you try to figure out, you, you try to reconcile that feeling with what you now know. And most, the most typical thing that a person does is they, they try to identify with consciousness. I, I, I am my own consciousness. Consciousness is me. And, uh, and as I spoke about earlier before the break, there's some truth in that. But there's also a glaring error in that. You see, you are not 
this little tiny bubble of consciousness. That's the illusion. And what a person will do, of course, is always say, oh, I'm consciousness, but I'm not this person. That must mean I'm God consciousness. I'm universal consciousness. I'm cosmic consciousness. That's my real self. What they're doing is they're putting a label on it that makes it something bigger than this individual self to reconcile with the fact that they know they're not this individual self they thought they were. And that label is allowing the feeling to still... There's kind of a... There's a kind of a cheating going on in the mind. We're going to give it a universal label, but then we're going to feel still feel like it's separate. Right? And that's, that's where somebody is on this path until they reach the fourth level, fourth stage. And they'll have... There's a whole variety of attempts to reconcile this. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the literature that you might come across is going to be written by people who are doing that, making that attempt to reconcile. And in order to convince themselves that they figured it out, they're writing a book, and if you believe them, if enough people read their book and believe it, then they'll feel comfortable that, okay, I've solved the problem, now I know who I really am. Yes? See, I, I, I can relate to the process, and what, what my question is, is as the older I get, um, the less I want to go hunting for my attachments. To hunting for what? Go hunting for them, right? For the attachments. If something happens, you know, I spend less energy looking at it. At, I just let it go a lot easier, right? Yeah. But I'm not sure that it's a path fate rather than an old thing. <laughs> well, you know, how do you tell the difference? <laughs> I, I, th- I think there's... They're somewhat mutually reinforcing. I, I think they're somewhat mutually reinforcing. He, the older we get, there is a general tendency to be for it to be easier to let go of our attachments. Although, if you if you really look honestly at people as they get older, they let go of some attachments, but they hold on to others even more fiercely. But the fact that accumulated experience... You see, the thing is that we we are confronting the truth all of the time. We're just not seeing it. The longer you live, and the more attention you pay while you live, the more it's going to soak in. And the more it soaks in, the less you're going to tend to be attached. So, getting older, actually, you could think of getting older as... uh, a way that reinforces the path. But just getting older by itself is not going to free you from all of your attachments, nor is it going to allow you to truly understand the truth that, that you've been seeking. So getting all, if, if getting older was all you needed, then, you know, <laughs> we'd find some way to accelerate the aging process. <laughs> but... But the the good thing, you know, the next thing I was going to talk about is how how do you get to this place? I, I, I first want to describe the four stages. 
And I wanted to talk about the process of getting to this first one. And um, it is basically a process of having more and more opportunities to see through the illusions that are making you suffer, which allows you to let go of those illusions and, and come more into a place of wisdom and understanding. And if you do a powerful practice, what it's doing is hugely accelerating what's bound to happen to some small degree if you just go through your life with even a modicum of awareness. Okay? That makes sense? So. Yeah. To function in this reality, we still have to have some rules or decision-making processes and so on. So does it mean when we reach the first stage you're talking about, we can play those rules, but we are not attached to them anymore? We still have to play it? No, it's not about not being... It's not being... It's not about not being attached to rules so much as it's about not being attached to the belief that following rules has some special power. Um, I mean, we're not really that attached to rules. We may think we're attached to rules when the truth is that uh, if we follow the rules and somebody else doesn't, then we get to feel like we're better than they are. And we're not really attached to the rule, we're attached to the way we feel when we know we followed it and they didn't. Uh, if we and, and so the, the attachment that we overcome is, on the one hand, the attachment to thinking rules have some special magical power. The other is uh, the attachment to self, which would make us be attached to rules because we think, well, I'm goody-goody and you're not. You know. But it's not the rules that we're really attached to. The rule, and, and believe me, what it absolutely is not is that when you reach not just the first stage of enlightenment, but even when you become an arhat, it is absolutely not the case that rules don't count for you anymore. That's the most absurd bit of nonsense that has been perpetuated, and sometimes hear that. Uh, rules exist for a reason. There's good rules and bad rules, better rules and worse rules, but what makes them good or bad is how well they work and they have a necessary place. A rule is something that if you don't know which way to go, I have a rule. You know, I say, how do you get from here to the campus? Well, you go on Grant and you turn right, next light, and then you turn right again. So the rule is you keep turning right till you get where you want to go, right? Because you didn't know where you were going. One of the things that does change as you become progressively more and more awakened is that you don't have to blindly follow a rule because now you understand why that was a rule in the first place. You have an inner compass based on wisdom that, you know, so awakened people aren't people that don't follow rules because they don't have to anymore. Awakened people are people who do the same thing, but it's not because they're following a rule, it's because now they know, know why the rule existed. Does that... Do you follow me there? Well, I, meant, 
I think I meant more or less rules, but opinions, and what you talked about the ego thing, like the functioning, you know, mm -hmm. the making decisions, discernments, and things. So we still have to do that, but yeah. when we are detached a little bit from that, maybe we can play it differently and not looking at the outcome. We still have to, you still have to follow those, right? Mm -hmm. On some level. Yeah, it's a progressive process. Where you've where you've arrived at, <coughs> I have to talk a little bit more about what the what what happens if you have a magapala moment or a darsana mag, uh, uh, marga moment. If you have a special moment that changes you, what that moment consists of is that typically it happens you're sitting in meditation, but it could happen after or something like that. But all of a sudden your mind stops doing what it always did before. Literally, your mind stops. And in that space created when your mind stops, you realize what it was the mind was doing all along. Okay? Because... Now, you're, this is another important point. Your mind could stop like that but if you hadn't done the work necessary, you know what, metaphorically, what we talked about last time, piling up all the sand so you can get over the wall to get to the place where you don't slide back. If you hadn't done that, your mind could stop and it would be like, oh, well, what was that? Oh, well, I wonder what's on TV. Yeah, it would have done nothing. It only has meaning because it's... It's now, it, it's something happening now that pulls together and makes sense of all the other pieces that you've, you've acquired. Now, when that happens, when, you know, what, what if you have that experience, what we would say is you had an experience of nirvana. You've had, a, nirvana means cessation. It means cessation of craving. It means cessation of mental formations. It basically means stopping the mind and dwelling in that place, and seeing the reality that's there when your mind's not painting this picture. Uh, part of that experience is not only knowing that you are not your ego self, it's also knowing that there are no separate things at all. Okay? When you come out of it, you still know that, even though you still feel like you're a separate self you know that you're not. So once again, it's the difference between here and here. Heart says, I'm a separate self. I've always been a separate self. But head says, wow, I remember what I saw and I'm never ever going to forget that. I'm not really separate. Now, that's information that when it comes to how you interact with other people, it adds a whole new dimension. Before that, the rules were one-dimensional. Don't lie, don't steal, don't hurt people, right? It was just, it was one-dimensional. And yeah, you kind of understood why, well, yeah, I shouldn't do that. But now it's got this whole other dimension that comes from knowing that you aren't separate from them at all. Okay? That's what it means. When somebody who knows what they're talking about says that as a person becomes awakened, that rules 
don't apply the same way. They don't mean that they don't have to follow them. They mean that they're going to follow them from a place of genuine, deep understanding, not from a place of either believing it's going to have magical effects or any of these other things. Okay. Yes? You mentioned, uh, you had said that, uh, like your heart tells you that you're different, uh, and and your mind says, uh, I saw this or experienced this, so I'm not. It's not, you don't have a belief that it's different, like the heart is, is more whole and more complete and it's the mind or the mental chatter or society that leads to the, the feeling of fragmented. Well, what we're referring to here is heart and mind are neither one inherently, intrinsically superior to the other. They're only different. And each can be equally seriously wrong and out of whack or equally seriously uh taking you in the right direction. But it would be very, you know, there is a whole group of people that say, heart smart, you know, if it doesn't make sense up here, it's not worth even looking at. And there's this whole other people, a bunch here say, all those heady types, they don't know what they're doing anyway. It's my heart. I listen to my heart. It's how I know what to do. And they're both equally wrong. We got, you know, I mean, if it was that simple, we probably would have figured out how to get rid of one or the other by now. (laughs) You can get just as much off track heart wise as you can head wise. But in this particular instance that we're talking about, you have an experience that registered in consciousness, you understand it clearly. And even though a feeling, a really powerful inner sense comes up, you know it's not based on reality. You know that reality is different than that. Now, if you think about it, some people would say, well, my heart knows we're all connected, but my head thinks we're all separate. Well, That's probably, you know, it's reflecting differences in, in individuals. By the way, anybody that wants to can go now. Reflexes, for the flex, difference in the way certain individuals are. It also reflects differences in the way we use words and think of things. But if we go back to the other model I was using earlier, is we have this little bubble of consciousness here and we have progressively deeper and deeper layers of mental processes and, and, and minds that guide us. Our worldview, the way that we see the world when we open our eyes and look out, is determined by the deepest level and then working its way up to what we become conscious of. So you become a conscious of a world where I am the separate being in this world of other separate beings. Where that comes from, though, is it doesn't originate up here. It originated at the deepest level, and it worked its way up in that form. Up at this level, you can can understand that maybe things really aren't that way. 
But it's not going to change the fact that tomorrow morning, when you wake up and open your eyes, you're going to see things that way. Because the deepest level of your minds that construct your reality are going to keep constructing it based on the premises that they're holding. You see what I'm saying here? Now, one person could say, yeah, you know, you could call that, you could call different aspects of that heart and mind. And one person could say, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I know it, it seems like I'm separate, but in my heart, I know I'm not. And that could be referring to exactly the same thing somebody else would say that, well, yeah, I, you know, I, I know in my mind that uh, we're not all separate, but I feel in my heart like I am. And so that's why I behave the way I do. See what I'm saying? So we're just using, we're just using words differently. But this is what changes. This is what has to change. For you to become awakened, You, what has to change, the inner transformation that has to occur, is that at the very deep level in your mind, the understanding has penetrated that things are this way and not that way. The way you see things right now, your worldview, is because... At the deepest, and I'll use another word, word that can be confusing, at the deepest intuitive. Intuitive means inner knowing. At the deepest intuitive level, your intuition is that you are separate. Your intuition is that you are in a world of separate beings and separate objects. And your intuition is that if you don't struggle and grasp, you won't get what you need. And your intuition is, if you don't get certain things, you're going to suffer. Your intuition is that if you do get certain things, you're going to be happy. But your intellect can probably already look through that and say, oh yeah, well, I've already tried that. I've got the things <laughs> I thought would make me happy, and it didn't work. <laughs> but my intuition keeps driving me tomorrow. You know, it says, no, 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 well, that was the wrong thing. That's a different set of things, you know. But the fact is, intuition is dead wrong in thinking that your happiness or your unhappiness comes from out there. It does not. But you're going to continue to suffer and make other people suffer until, at the very deepest level of your mind, your intuitive understanding is that my happiness and unhappiness don't come from out there. So, so what if somebody has the two, those two same thoughts, but as I said, the heart and the mind and the intuitive thought is just opposite, as you said. So if I feel that way, I mean, intuitively, I know that everything's all right. I know. And then the mental chatter or whatever is different. That's yeah. It, it, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter what labels you put on it. Your mental chatter... Your, your mental chatter is always going to be a reflection of what's going on at the deepest level of your mind. Or just above the intuitive level. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, if you're conscious of it and how you got there, then you're not probably going to call it intuition. If you don't know how you arrived at it, you're going to call it intuition. Another way of saying it is it's coming from the unconscious processes in your mind. Anyway, um, the darn bell rang already. It's hard to believe.
But it's only 825. Yeah, it's only 825. Yeah, it rang early. It rang early. It's only 825. <laughs> 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 okay. Well, many mysteries. So I have very little time. Let me tell you a little bit about the other three stages in this process. Okay. Then we want, then, and this will have to wait till next time, I guess. We'll talk about how you get to that first stage. And of course, that will help us understand a little bit more how you get through the others. But the second stage, well, first of all, there's another name for this first stage other than stream enter. It's also the seven times returner. Because this person who's achieved this first, has achieved this realization, had this inner transformation, still has a, a mind that operates on deeply ingrained habits acquired over a lifetime. And so, as I mentioned to you, something will happen and they'll, they'll react emotionally in the way they always have. So they'll, they'll react by suffering. They'll react by anger. They'll react, you know, habits of mind will kick in. So even though they have attained to wisdom, even though they have awakened, they've had an experience of awakening, when they awakened, that might have lasted for lasted for a week, ten ten days, two months, six months. There's a glow that comes, and the understanding is really right up front, and it's always there. But over that period of weeks or months, it tapers off. The glow tapers off. You still know what you knew, but it's not quite as up front anymore, and that's why. This person who's only achieved the first path will keep slipping into these. He'll keep returning, right? And in in uh, the older traditional ways of speaking, to return seven times is more than just a few, but not a huge number. And it doesn't mean between six and a half and seven point five. It means. More than a few, but not a huge amount. <laughs> this is what brings them to the second stage. They realize that desire and aversion is driving their thought processes, their actions, their emotions, and everything else. And until they cease to be driven by desire and aversion as inner compulsions, urges, but push them to think in a particular way and feel in a particular way and act in a particular way, that they're never going to really be free of suffering. And so the second, the second path is the once returner, it's called. Seven, seven times returner becomes the once returner. And it is characterized by an enormously weakened force of desire and aversion in their mind. They still experience desire and aversion, but it doesn't have the overwhelming, overpowering impact that it did before. And they have become a once-returner in that now, with this realization, and that that realization has weakened the power of desire and aversion over them, 
they are going to go back again and they are going to uproot desire and aversion completely. So the second stage, the once returner, is somebody who has weakened desire and aversion so that they can deal with it effectively. And so they return to samsara, to the world of suffering, intentionally, just so that they can catch desire and aversion every time it comes up and dig their old trusty trowel down underneath and bring it up by its roots. Which, when they've done the work, will bring them to the third stage, the non-returner. The non-returner is free from all desire and aversion to do with the world. And so this person is pretty much permanently free of the majority of the suffering that human beings experience and is also not going to behave in the ways driven by desire and aversion. In other words, he is not going to return to living in the world of samsara. Because the world of samsara has been uprooted in his mind or her mind completely. Now this person still has... Okay, so this is... In the first stage, you overcame three fetters, three impediments. You overcame the belief in a personal self as being real, attachment to it, belief in rights, rules, rituals, and doubt about the path. At the second path, you didn't overcome any new fetters, but you just you got really clear on the problem, and you had weakened the hold of desire and aversion over you. On the third path, you overcome two more fetters, desire and aversion for things of the world. They're completely gone. What you have left is this inherent sense of self and the things that come from it. You have the fetter of I am. It's called the conceit I am. It doesn't mean conceit in the sense of I'm better than you. It means the conceit I am And it doesn't matter what follows that. I am better than you. I am worse than you. I am the same as you. They're all the conceit. I am. See? And that, because of that conceit, I am, there is the desire to exist. The clinging to continued existence as, you know, if I'm a separate entity, If I exist separately, then I don't want to cease existing separately. Even though part of me has learned by now through a lot of, through the achievement of three successive path attainments and through a whole lot of palasamapati, of dwelling in nirvana, I know that I'm not separate, but the part of me that feels like I'm separate doesn't want to cease existing. And so there is uh, two more fetters, uh, which are basically uh, the desire to exist in the uh, fine material and immaterial realms, the realms of the mind and the spirit, to continue to exist in this place of feeling like you're a separate self. And then the other things associated with that is there's a certain restlessness of spirit 
the the calm, the bliss, the tranquility is not perfect because there's this part of you that's basically clinging to existence. And when so the non-returner has, still has the and the non-returner is someone whose task now is to completely overcome that inherent sense of being a self. And when that is overcome, all of these other fetters disappear. That make sense to you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's actually a very, you know, it, it's, it's a very logical process. It's a very understandable process. And when you understand it, you know, it, it does. It makes a lot of sense. And there's really nothing about it that is mystical in the sense that it's not comprehensible. It's all entirely comprehensible. And not only that, all of us have enough experiences of one type or another to show us that it really can happen, that it really is possible. But what we need to put most of our attention on is how you get from being the worldling that you are, subject to suffering, subject to desire and aversion, constantly making the same mistakes over and over again. Right? How you get from there to being a stream entrant. Yeah, how do we? And so, can't go on and go in tonight, but that's called the path of insight. And just briefly what it is, is it's a series of experiences that reveal the truth in different ways. And every time the experience is revealed to you, every time the truth is revealed to you in a different way, and you're conscious of it, some of those deep parts of you are paying attention, and they, they change the way they construct your worldview. Those are the straws that when enough of them accumulate, the last straw is going to break the camel's back. In other words, there's not going to be enough of that intuitive misperception left to keep driving you in that same way. And it's not something that you're ever going to fall back from because the learning has penetrated down to the bottom level where everything starts from. You follow that analogy? When it's only penetrated down halfway, then the stuff that comes up can just push that right out again. No matter how many books you read and talks you listen to and say, oh, I got it, I really understand it, that view from underneath is still going to come up and knock it out. It's when it gets down all the way to the bottom. Then, no matter how much wrong stuff comes in, it's going to get knocked out by the right stuff. Yes? Very quickly here, because I know we're getting late. The, the whole desire and aversion thing is really interesting to me. Because when you really, really pay attention in every single moment, in every single circumstance, it seems to me that it's like, uh, it's almost like scales. Desire, aversion, desire, aversion. And, and, and thing, it's so finely tuned, and it's so a part of our whole uh, internal construct, that everything is, you're pulled with desire or you're recoiling with aversion. And it's on the most subtle 
level. Right. That's I mean, right. That's a whole universe to talk mm-hmm. about some other time, maybe. But, but that's a biggie. That's so so. Oh no! It absolutely is. If any of you have ever, maybe in high school biology or something, looked through a microscope at paramecium swimming around a little single-celled organism, it goes here and this way. What's making it change direction every time is desire and aversion in a very, in a very simple form. You know. It doesn't have it doesn't have the apparatus we do to feel emotions of desire and aversion, but little receptors on the surface, if they detect some glucose molecules, then its little whirling tail makes it go in that direction. If it instead is bumping into an, a zone where uh, there's some unpleasant chemical present, then it has a direct by just a few little simple links to the mechanism that turns its tail so it goes the other way. You know? And we're built up out of that. And that's that's what desire and aversion is. Yeah. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. It's driving us all the time. That's the thing. If if you have the experience of nirvana not as some spontaneous thing that just through luck and circumstances happens to have, happen to happen to you, instead, if it's the result of a systematic process of training your mind, then you can go back and have the genuine experience over and over again. It's not just the memory. In between. You know, I mean, the typical person who's succeeded at this, they have a path moment. You know, next time they sit down, they can find their way back and they can have a, a fruition experience. But in between those two, it's just a memory. But if they keep going back more and more often, then it it's not just a memory, now it's the understanding that that moment brings is being disseminated to more and more parts of their mind. So how do we set up for that 
revisitation instead of that recollection. Well, okay. that's what the, that's what this that's what that's what this practice is about. What what you're going to before you ever have the first path moment, what you're doing going to do is you're cultivating the qualities of mind and the mental skills that you can apply consistently over and over again when you sit to provide insight experiences. Nirvana is just the ultimate insight experience. It's the complete removal of the veil. All of the other inside experiences are partial removals of the veil. Right? And so there is really a kind of a continuity. What makes the difference between a stream enterer and a non-stream enterer is that the understanding is penetrated to a level it's accumulated over a broad enough area that it's not going to be undone. But the process... The process is, the whole goal of the practice is to cause us to have the kind of experience that's going to allow us a glimpse of the way things really are. And once we've had a glimpse, then we go back and have other glimpses. And between glimpses, we keep reminding ourselves of what we saw and what we understood. And so through a combination of more and more glimpses, combined with using the memory of our last glimpses to see that this really is what it is when we're going through the world. In other words, we're doing exactly the same process that a stream entrant does to get to be a once-returner and a non-returner and an arhat. But we're just, we're not quite as good as it yet, at, at it yet. That's, does that make sense to you? It, it makes sense, and... If we were not pressed for time, I'd, I'd I'd have to I'd have to argue a metaphor of psychic phenomena. You hear about these people who, oh, I saw that that plane wreck was going to happen. Well, it didn't help them. They didn't see enough of it to say, oh, that was flight two o two headed for Baltimore at six p.m. They you you don't get enough information. It's just frustrating. If you're if you're gonna be that, I, and, and so you you hear uh, about people being psychic but not psychic enough right. for it to do them any good, why? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm I'm gonna stop. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know people want to go home, but this would help me with some clarification, maybe. Um, so if in the leg work of the first stage, so you haven't achieved, um, I'm not sure the poly word you just keep using, but you yeah, know, enlightenment, the, the first the, the path. Yeah, path and if, if we have moments of it, and this is what we're doing in the practice, and then we say someone has that moment, or the week or month or whatever of enlightenment, and in the second stage, they're still bombarded with the habits, um, but they're sitting and practicing to re-experience the enlightenment, but the habits are, um, they're not different than the first one, or you're just aware that they're there, you're separated from it? Okay, let me just clarify here. Thank you. Okay, the first stage of enlightenment, there is this period coming up to the first stage, where you're a worldling, right? Mm -hmm. And you have experiences, but they don't penetrate deeply enough. Between the first stage and the second stage, 
is where the habit energy of the mind is really, really powerful. That's that's why. Yeah, I'm on the same page with you there. Okay. What I was curious about, thank, thank you, I wasn't as clear yeah. about that as you were. Um, in that process of those habits, is there a, anywhere in the philosophy that, that that is taking place as a lesson so that when you get to the place, and I can't remember, where you purposely go back. That's that's between the second and third stage. Right, but in the, so, uh, I apologize, I'm confusing the stages here, but after the first stage of enlightenment, the habits are strong, Yeah. and those function, is it possible that those are functioning as lessons, your awareness and seeing, oh, that's habitual, I do that, oh, I pattern, I've done that, so that when you do get to the, end and the second stage you are what's the stage where you said you purposely re-enter so that that's can, when you reach the second stage that's how you get to the third stages by pur- purposely going back and confronting yeah okay if i think i, I think i understand what you're saying it functions and, as and a tool right. so that when you go back yeah typically somebody who's become a stream enterer they have this glow and there's also they become kind of lackadaisical about pursuing the past for a while. Mm. It's like, wow, this is so much better than my life ever has been before. They're kind of, they're not driven as much to make it to the second path, to the path of the once return. But what brings them to that is they do keep coming back. They do, you know, the habit energy does keep overwhelming them and they suffer again. And, And at some point they say, okay, enough's enough. Let me go back to work. It's time for me to to do something about this. And, you know, I can only speak from my own experience, but for me, it came just as a really clear realization one day in a meditation retreat that, you know, there is only one truly wholesome mental state my mind is ever in. And that's when there's no desire and aversion. And so it's like, all right, enough of this nonsense. <laughs> Let's do something about it. And and uh, that was a part of second path. Then you're ready. Then you, you've achieved that understanding. And it has to be coupled with an inner change. You can't, if you just decide, if you're on first path, you just decide, well, I know the thing I've got to do now is overcome desire and aversion, so I'm going to go at it. It doesn't work because you have to, the other changes have to take place so that now desire and aversion don't show up at this strength, they show up at this strength. And then this strength, it's not manageable. At this strength, now you can, another way to think of it, you know, uprooting, you're going to uproot desire and aversion is like uprooting a cat claw. When the roots are six feet in and the brambles are so thick you can't get to it, you're not going to uproot the cat claw. You've got to cut all the branches off first. Then you can uproot the cat claw. So, thank you. I'll use that metaphor. That's a good metaphor. I'll try to remember to use that again in the future. Cut branches. Okay, well, thank you all very much.